Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Our guest today is Dr. Robin Lincoln-Wood. He's the author of 11 books, has lived and worked in 36 countries, and has been an activist for transformation and social change for more than 40 years. Robin is a fan of Ken Wilber and thus an integrally informed practitioner and leader. He's the founder of the Leapfrog Investment Club in London, where he implements the principles of thriveability, his integral investment model. Over the past four decades, Dr. Wood has worked with hundreds of Global 1000 clients and also created several commercial and socially innovative startups. Thank you for being here and welcome to our podcast, Robin. Well, thank you very much, Mariana. As, as we just realized before, we, we met seven, several years ago, seven years ago, actually, at the UN event in The Hague, when we both uh, helped various governments and NGOs and the UN to uh, get ready for the Rio Plus 20. Mm-hmm. And um, we both appreciate integral theory, which we also use as the foundation of our work. So what happened in your life, Robin, that put you on this path? What happened specifically? Well, very specific, specifically, uh, that's a great question. Thanks, Mariana. Um, what happened to me was uh, I was um, I had left uh, university and campaigning for the end of apartheid and Man- Mandela's release and so on. And I'd I'd done my military service in South Africa and saw saw particularly uh, how the country and the region, the entire region, was engulfed in a civil war, uh, several civil wars actually. And uh, at the end of this, I was doing a program, a diploma in international financial management, the same one that's run at Harvard Business School. And it was run by uh, the head of a part of Citibank in, in South Africa, a German guy called Klaus Hoffmann. And at the end of this program, Klaus said, would you like a job at Citibank? And as I was a corporate lawyer and, and I also wanted to see the world a bit, I'd lived in Canada and my family traveled around. I thought that sounds like a wonderful idea. So I joined Citibank. And we started an investment bank in South Africa in 1982. And um, I was sent to London and we started something called swaps, currency and interest rate swaps, which I think was the $10 billion market that year, which is now a trillion dollar market globally. And I saw the power of global finance and money. I also saw the evil side of it, which was the men coming across from New York with red braces. And at that time, I decided, you know, I don't want to be one of these men with the red braces, <clears throat> the Gordon Geckos <laughs> types. Um, I, I think finance is going in the wrong direction. So I, be, I went into electronic banking and became an advisor to banks and, and, and boards and helped pull Warburgs together out of five different banks and so on. So uh, launched the world's first electronic funds transfer at point of sale program in the UK, which is now what we call the smart card. And um, so at a very young age, I was very close to a lot of power. And my dad had been a CEO so and an entrepreneur. And I, I, I was, had, had, how do I combine my social justice, my environmental justice with business yeah, and finance? And I thought, well, obviously, if we can get a, a, an understanding of transformation, we can make finance a power for good. Yeah. I mean, it's not always bad. Finance can do important things. It can build huge projects that help millions or billions of people. But the problem is that the 
the red braces guys I saw in the 80s took over, financialized the economy and, and made it so that only money matters, right? And after 40 years of that, we see the results, which is terrible. But I think finances were one of the keys uh, to the, the solution of this problem. So in a nutshell, that's what I've been doing is working on transformation, working with boards, working with banks and investors, even the World Bank, to uh, even at the beginning in Rio 1, we worked on the uh, sustainable energy lending policy of the World Bank. So how could we have a sustainable policy at that stage? And that was, that was more than 30, well, almost 40 years ago now, you know? So the problem was that everybody thought we had a solution and the solution was technology and markets. And it turned out that technology and markets are not the solution, they're just a part of it. And as we know from integral thinking, uh, you have to have a mind shift and a behavior shift, as well as a culture shift and a systemic shift together, which is what I call a synchro shift. And we, we have not managed to do that in time. That is that was our mistake, right? The system didn't change fast enough and predatory delay by the fossil fuel companies and the chemical companies and the plastics companies meant that we we failed basically to live up to what was possible and, and people's minds, mindset was not ready, uh, you know, which is very sad because we look at the damage we've done, you know, around us now and we say, hmm, we have to turn this around very fast, 10 years maximum. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of been my passion and, and that's how I got started. And, you know, ultimately without the money going in, we're not going to do it in time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And our audience consists mostly of investors, business people, and entrepreneurs. This is why we do this uh, podcast for the investment turnaround. And um, that's why I'd like to know more about your own investment model that you call Thrivability, and which is, as I understand, is a process that selects the candidate investments with the highest potential to generate a thriving future. And uh, can you describe that in more detail? Well, um, the very first thing, the, the, the very first place to start is to think, as I remember saying to Dr. Steve Waygood at Aviva, <clears throat> Steve, you probably know Steve or have met Steve, um, one of the leading thinkers in, in sustainability, head of the Global Stock Exchange, the Sustainable Stock Exchange Initiative and so on. Yes, I do. And I had a meeting with him a few years ago about thrivability and gave him the book and we were talking about all these things. And fundamentally, I said, you know, Steve, the problem with investors is they, they, they don't take risks. Basically, when you target a number, right, uh, you say, well, I'm a big, you know, I'm a big, well, even Aviva, Aviva is not the biggest, but if you have a trillion or four trillion like BlackRock in the market, um, you become part of the market. So you have to be very careful when you divest from fossil fuels, for example, and the amount of money you've got following that, you, you, you know, you, you move the whole market when you do something, right? And so the biggest investors are, by definition, risk averse because they, you know, they have to take small steps to do anything because otherwise they move the market and the pricing changes and that's a big problem for them. Uh, so I, I come from more of a background of thinking like an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist, 
or an angel investor, where what I look at is I say, hey, you know, um, there's lots and lots of things going on on this planet right now. Many of them are highly regenerative projects, but they just haven't scaled yet. And in fact, most of them are invisible to the institutional investors. And, um, and you yourself, I know, have been like me in Silicon Valley uh, for many years. And um, you, you know that mindset of Silicon Valley where you're looking for the, 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 the four or five guys, it's usually guys, unfortunately, a bit of a bro culture, but that's Silicon Valley. And, and you know, you're looking for those, that team that has a potential you know, billion dollar business model, right? But they're, they just started up six months ago or a year ago. And, and the, the renewable space, the, the regenerative space, is exactly like the digital space was in the early 90s. I mean, I remember sitting in a room in Palo Alto with 110 people next to Gary Hamill, Peter Schwartz of Global Business Network, and a variety of other people, and all the top executives of Hewlett Packard talking about the information superhighway, the web, and what would happen to the web. And that was January 1995. And it was a really interesting moment because Netscape had just IPO'd, Amazon had just begun trading, and everybody was saying, wow, you know, and if only I'd known, I'd have put my money <laughs> in a lot of different places than what I know now, right? But um, the, the fact is that, that, that there was this incredible potential, and look how fast that scaled, right? We went from 1995 to now, uh, and... You know, Amazon is now the biggest company in the world in, in terms of uh, value. It's the most valuable company. It's a hundred, hundred, hundred billion dollar company. Is that right? I don't know. I, I think one hundred and sixty billion. I think that was the net worth of Bezos, but that was just Bezos. Yeah. You're right. You're right. No, it's a trillion. It's a trillion dollar market cap. You're right. So App, Apple. It's, no, it's, a, it's insane. It can't be a trillion. I'm, I'm losing my mind here. There's so many zeros. It doesn't really matter. The fact is, Amazon was, and it competes with Apple and, uh, for this honor of being the world's most valuable company in terms of market cap. It's huge. So, yeah, these also stock is worth $120 billion, so it must be a, a trillion. I mean, it, it's just crazy. I mean, can you and I even sitting here could actually use that word for a market cap of a company that in 1995 had just started, yeah? I mean, that is, that is insane in, in some ways, but yet that's what the digital revolution has created. So my question to investors is there are just as many fantastic uh, startups out there right now. And in fact, I know people who are in, in mangrove swamps, uh, you know, different parts of the world from the Asia to the Central America, you know, tropical regions of the world. I mean, a mangrove swamp's 10 times better than a, a forest for capturing blue and, 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 uh, you know, uh, air carbon, right? But all of these people are struggling to get investment for different reasons, yeah? And the carbon credits aren't working well enough to make it really a, a very profitable business. So what would it take, and I've been working with another investment banker in Paris who's been doing this for one company to turn this around because we need mangrove swamps to be planted like crazy right now. That's what the world needs but we're not getting the money into mangrove swamps. So there's a structural problem that, that can be solved, but it actually takes the finance and the investment banking skills to do it. And as far as I know, none of the big guys 
are investing there because they say it's too early, yeah? But we only have 10 years. So that's a, just a, one example of the frustration. And I've had these people in my workshops talking about how difficult it is to get this done. And I'm thinking, come on, people. Who, you know, who can I talk to to do this? And the answer is it's very difficult because a, a venture capitalist, that's not a traditional thing. You know, we say we want to invest in mangrove swamps. <laughs> but it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the big drawdown, uh, you know, in Paul Hawkins' terms. It's a big drawdown, top project. So I, that's what I look for. I look for those areas where there's tremendous potential. There's not enough money or there's almost no money going into it. And if you put enough money into it, it would literally hit a tipping point and go ballistic. It would be like that digital liftoff I was describing with Amazon. But of course, you get a Netscape as well, because Netscape was fantastic for five years until Microsoft had poached half its engineers because they had both the head of Internet Explorer and the uh, head of engineering for Netscape on the board of a company I was running uh, 15, 20 years ago. And um, we'd sit, you know, having a coffee talking about how, you know, Microsoft was stealing the engineers from Netscape and Netscape went bust basically, right? So that's the problem with venture capitalists. You don't know which side of that you're going to be on. And, uh, so disruption comes from people on the outside of the system. It doesn't come from the center. You know, investing in solar panels now, that's like buying government bonds, yeah? The risk is almost gone. Solar panels are a done deal. Uh, we need more money going into solar, but I think there's enough. And uh, yes, I could buy a solar fund. In fact, I have a few solar funds that I look at, and some of them are doing much better than others. But to be honest, that's not where the 1,000% uh, opportunity is. And that's also not going to help the planet nearly as much as if we put the money into mangrove swamps. If that example gives you an idea of, of my thinking, at least. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I, I totally understand what you're saying. I'm just trying to see how you're doing it and how you are enticing people to bypass exist, existing structures. Because ah. that's exactly the problem. Uh, you know, venture capital is, is just one type of asset classes uh, from the, you know, like the more, most risky one. But what we need to do is go into the, the elephant in the room, you know, the, get the big money to get moved yeah. towards sustainability. And so well, my is... question is, mm -hmm. how do you do that? How do you recommend doing that? How is Thrivability doing it to help? you know pension funds people with yeah. billions and hundreds of billions of dollars mm -hmm, mm -hmm. move so that we finally get uh, to the tipping point this is this is the big question and what well, we do in yes, uh, yes. aqua we we just invest in in real assets like you're saying you uh -huh. know try to help pension funds invest into like you said solar panels wind farms uh, uh, hydro, hydro, uh, hydro, uh, hydropower plants, and so on. Well, that that is that is actually the the challenge uh, I face because apart from people with their own money, un unless you want to set up a fund, in which case you have to go through a two-year regulatory uh, process, and you have to meet Mifid. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Mifid, which is all the requirements for a fund. Uh, in Europe. It's awful. Uh, yeah. That's why we don't do it. <laughs> it's, 
unbelievably complex. And the, the liabilities and the risks personally are huge. Uh, and of course, you know, you have to ensure totally uh, good corporate governance. Uh, and that, that is, in a way, it's like, you know, it's a lifestyle issue as well, because I would have to move to London to be close to something like this, yeah, because I couldn't do this in a foreign language because I, I can speak French and I understand a little German, you know, but I don't speak German. But you know, I, I would be, I would be, I would have to be in a regime where, which I understood, which is the British, the Anglo-Saxon finance model, and the legal structures. And I, I really, uh, I'm, you know, turning 63 next month. I really don't want to get back into that game myself. But I would love to be able to, we've talked about this for some of the bigger players, the evergreen investors, for example, the pension funds, the life insurance guys, you know, people who have a, a really big, a long liability problem, right? And, and they're, they're looking 40, 50 years ahead. And I've had many meetings with dozens and dozens of the heads of these things in Amsterdam and London and uh, New York at Bloomberg and, you know, <laughs> Boston, you know, the various big, big players in Boston, they all have the same problem, is that they can't find enough assets. You referred to this earlier in the call. But the problem is that they, there's this gap between what's legally, uh, the finance industry has become, quite rightly so, because there's so many crooks, unfortunately, has become so heavily regulated that it's making it very difficult to be flexible and fast in the renewable space. In, in the in the regenerative space, yeah, and I know lots and lots of very talented people with fantastic projects, and apart from you know stringing together some angels or a bit of venture capital here and there, it's 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 you kind of got the attention of the mainstream guys. So that's that's when you ask me what I'm doing, that's what I'm doing because we looked at Mifid, we looked at a fund, we looked at all sorts of uh, different mechanisms to do this, and they all turned out to be not really that great and not flexible enough. So when you want to, as you know, when you want to sell something to the public, you have to be absolutely, uh, totally lawyered up, right? You have to be lawyered up, account to your accountants. You're looking at, at I'm not kidding, uh, you know, several hundred thousand, if not a, a million or so of legal and accounting and other fees to get something like this running, which is a lot of money for, you know, a small investor, yeah? Right. And this is why we uh, we have no. built those networks. You know, we're a member of Tonic. And um, so we're trying to bypass existing structure, you know, with by joining forces with other high net worth individuals. But <clears throat> no matter what we do, I mean, even if, you, if you're Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, it's not enough capital to really uh, address the the climate problems that we have and we as you said we only have 10 10 11 years and uh, so the question is how can we still do it because obviously we need to break the gordon knot it's not <laughs> going to happen by itself no uh, it won't and and um it's oh um you know the I've spent a lot of my career as an advisor, and um, the the thing I would love to do, and this is uh, this would again, have, I'd have to spend a lot more time in, in financial capitals to do this, 
But if I could see a way of getting there, I would. And maybe with some partners, I could do it. But I'm, st I'm stuck down here in the southwest of France in a lovely old chateau. But, you know, so I go to London. I go, I go to all these places regularly, Barcelona. Um, and, and I was just in California for two weeks doing some master classes with, with some, you know, significant heavy, heavyweight players there. And they're all saying the same thing that we're talking about right now. I mean, I'm not kidding. It's, it's like, it's like mind blowing how everybody's saying the same thing. And yet there are no mechanisms. So I, I was thinking, how, couldn't we set up a, um, a system where we were able to allow, set up a portfolio. And this is what we did with um, the, uh, the leapfrog investing. We set up a kind of shadow portfolio and then we license that into the bigger players so they can see what they're buying into, right? But your shadow portfolio is not a, a, a billion dollar portfolio. It's a, you know, tens of millions, right? But it's what it was like, it's like a toe in the, in the shallow end of the water to show what's possible. Yeah. So you de-risk it for the big guys. And um, the big guys can then make the, the, the case to their in investors and their board, obviously, that they should have a little bit of discretionary funds to test out these new waters and take slightly bigger risks. Now, I know there's all sorts of legal and other you know, issues that will rise up and smack them in the face when they want to do this. But unless we, we can find some way to do that, I mean, you're right, there's, you're going to be stuck with Buffett and Gates and you know, uh, a, a, another 5,000 billionaires, right, who are playing you know, 100 million here, you know, 100 million there. Um, and it's just not enough. And, and the problem is that that becomes very proprietary. So they, they don't, like, like venture capital does, they don't tell anybody anything, right? Whereas my goal is the opposite. My goal is to say, hey, look, we figured out how to make mangrove swamps profitable. Now, I want to license that to every major evergreen investor on the planet. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And that's exactly what we're doing. That's exactly what we're working on right now. We call it a climate endowment. And uh, we're looking uh -huh. for projects. So if you have, but you know, projects, but they have to be to begin with, they have to be in the West. We cannot go to Africa where the mangroves grow <laughs> because the risk, uh, uh -huh. is too high so we need to start with um yeah, as you yeah. said discretionary funds should go into a highly de-risked western real assets uh, kind of investment and until you aggregate mm -hmm. you know a few billion not a lot but a few just to show that it works and it is successful and then over time although we only have <laughs> 10 years you know hope to get to move more capital in, in the same direction while the regulators hopefully yeah. over time will come up with some better ideas as to how to de-risk it and so we, with that we actually are at the topic of de-risking can you share us some of your ways of de-risking as part of the the sixth pathway to thrivability tribal yeah yes well so so the in in both um, the book synergize and then the the, the follow-on to that making good happen what I was doing was pulling together everything I was seeing going around the world's conferences and, you know, having conversations like this with hundreds of different, um, you know, thought leaders, let's say, and, and, and investment leaders, as well as um, 
the act activists who are getting out there and making you know these things happen, right? Um, and uh, the the six pathways are really a um, there's two different checks I have on on what makes something thrivable. Yeah. So as the the name suggests, thrivable is the ability to thrive, and that means that we have to do that within the the donut that Kate Rayworth. I'm sure you're familiar with Kate Rayworth's donut, right? Yes, of course. Donut, donut economics, and most of the people listening to this will be familiar with that as well. Well, uh, to tell a short story, in about 10 years ago, I began something called Renaissance 2, which was my first attempt. I, I, I emailed my top 100 networks around the planet, and I said, uh, gentlemen and some ladies, um, this is what I want to do. I think we've got a huge opportunity here to kickstart a second global renaissance, you know, that will create, you know, renewable energy, resilient cities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in uh, using integral principles. So uh, we held several events. We had top people who everybody will have heard of uh, at these events in dozens of cities around the world. And it got off to a very good start. Uh, the issue was actually, funnily enough, money. So we said, well, you know, we're, None of the people, even the powerful people in this network, have access to enough money to really scale this. So at one speech I gave, I looked at the uh, equation that the UN uses for sustainability, which has always been defined as reducing human impact, and then that, that reduction equals the um, population times affluence, which is consumption, divided by technology. Yeah. And I saw there were two things wrong with that. One is reducing impact is a hair shirt. It, it, it's not a motivator, yeah, number one. So very few people want to give up the nice lifestyle for something that they don't know even what it is, right? Or it sounds like vegan, cold, you know, um, not, not much fun, yeah, uh, lifestyle. So they say, oh, I don't really... Uh, sustainability, we'll just do it a little bit, right? Just a little bit. We'll have a CSO. We'll be a little bit more sustainable every year, which is business as usual, and that's a problem we have. The second problem with it was not just that it doesn't motivate anybody. It's like a hair shirt. But it also has the equation the wrong way around because the genius of human beings to innovate is infinite, literally. And I see this all the time in the six pathways that I've defined in making good happen. I just see so many things. The problem is there's too many of them and not enough of them are scaling. And so it's really, really time intensive to find the things and the people and the teams that will actually scale. And um, the top people in this space don't have the time for that because they got too much money to move and you know they want to go for, as you say, de-risk stuff. So how do I de-risk? Well, in the six pathways, you look for synergies, and this is something major investors don't even see, because when you look at industry structures and you look at the evolution of ecosystems and the players which are creating the intense centers of coevolution in those business ecosystems, which actually mirrors what's going on in natural ecosystems, that's where you invest. So that's what I learned in Silicon Valley. I learned how to be an intense center of evolution, coevolution in the ecosystem. And I saw the winners were always setting the standards and creating the platforms. And that is what we need to do 
in the regenerative and renewable investment space. We need to apply that thinking there, which is what I'm doing. The, the, now, the, how does that de-risk things? Well, by definition, if you're just a player on the edge of the ecosystem, you have high risk because you essentially are not, nothing more than your network and the degree to which you can trust the speed of innovation in your network to keep you ahead of the other players in the game. Am I making sense so far? Absolutely. Yeah, and, but that's not the thinking. When I read, oh my God, I get this huge thing every month, the investment and pensions Europe, the volatility paradox, factor investing perspectives. Now, guess what? None of these people are going out of their offices, not many of them, to actually look at what's really going on on the ground. Um, in fact, uh, what they do is they sit behind computers and they crunch vast, vast databases of numbers, which at the end of the day, by the law of big numbers, ends up averaging out everything, right? So even factor investing is averaging stuff out. And um, yes, you can go for low volatility or high volatility or more green or less green or whatever it is you want. But, but the fact is that, and you know, I, I won't mention names, but some of the biggest funds are not doing anything adventurous at all. I mean, they're literally crunching the numbers and then going, oh, this looks safe, we'll do that. And so and that's not how disruption happens. It's disruption happens because you invest in Amazon. It happens because you invest in, you know, Facebook or whatever it is. I mean, not that Facebook's disrupting any industry. It's actually creating a new one. Um, but, you know, uh, so if you don't apply that thinking, you, you, you get the same results you've always got, which is what we're getting. And so the investment community uh, needs to learn. Now, that, my question is to you, I mean, having spent a lot of time in finance in my life, and with investors, what's the chance that, that that community of people are really up for that, you know, that learning? I mean, what's the appetite for it is my question, because I don't feel, I don't get any real desire there. They understand what I'm saying because they're smart people, but the incentives are not structured to make that happen. That seems to me right. That's why we can't do nothing. I mean, you and I, and those of us who see the problems, you know, can only do this much. So, if you happen to have some capital of your own, you invest it in, in a way that you can show a better way. And those who do not invest their own money, they just make sure that they keep their seats, yeah. a safe seat, until they get in, in pension. And behind them, the you know the. <laughs> They don't really care. So even if they don't hate their kids, although it looks as if they did based on their behavior right now, because they're doing nothing for their kids, they are, their hands are tied up and they tend to, to uh, manifest a schizophrenic behavior. Mm -hmm. On one hand, they love their, their kids. They want to make sure that their kids are safe and then the planet is safe and so on. On the other hand, they do nothing to move toward that, although they see that they can make money. Uh, they don't contribute to the development of the economy. They don't do to contribute toward the development of the ecological system, they, you know, and so on and so on. 
So it's, it's sick. And I think the only way how this can change is uh, by getting in governments and regulators to change the rules. Yes. So we have gone too far toward the security mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, I mean, <clears throat> the EU is at the forefront of this thinking. And yet, I don't know what it is. It's maybe just the fact that Brussels is a massive bureaucracy, even if it's a well-meaning bureaucracy. Um, and that old bureaucrats, you know, tend to hang out with, you know, other elderly folks who are mainly gentlemen and very, very good ones at that. And they have the best of intentions. And nothing ever happens very fast in that world. Nothing. Um, I mean, I can remember sitting around tables 10, 15 years ago talking with people about a Green New Deal. <laughs> Where's that gone, you know? Um, because we, that is what we need. And that's a, a lot of effort I'm putting in at the moment into what I'm writing and what I'm working on. It's my influence is to say, we really have to make this happen extremely fast because, you know, politically, we've been in a logjam for the last 20 years where we say, oh, but we, we need to create growth and growth to create jobs. Because if we don't have growth in jobs, then we're going to have social meltdown and we're going to have a civilizational collapse. <clears throat> and that's the old way of thinking about it. It's what I'd call the, the out-of-date, the, the past-the-sell-by-date model, right? And so I've, I've just, um, one of the things I was doing in California was testing together with a couple of hundred people on webinars since the last six months, testing out five new different models of uh, how the, the world should work and how it is working. The first is a global transition model. And in the global transition model, everybody goes, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. That's, those are the dynamics. Uh, then the question is, well, how do we change that? So then we look at seven acupuncture points, how we can change our thinking in the acupuncture points in each industry and in finance, especially. Now, you try to get somebody from the finance industry to spend one day on a masterclass. You'll never get them ever, right? It's, the, the, the fact that their models of thinking are out of date is not something they'd ever agree with, right? They just go, hmm, no, I'm pretty up to date. I know everything. But it's, it's not the information we're talking about. It's the actual underlying mental models they're using that are the problem. And it's the same with the EU. It's the same with financial regulators everywhere. They are designed to avoid and minimize risk. That is fundamentally their you know, uh, mindset. And they don't realize that by doing that, they're taking a much bigger risk with our planet, right? Well, they do. Actually, even they get that. They get that. But then, as you say, there's a gap because what do they do now differently than they did before? Well, the Green New Deal is the only thing I think that can help them understand that you don't need to have social chaos to make the investments we need to make which would generate already the jobs we know in renewables, the jobs is two, three times as many jobs as there is in, in uh, the coal industry. And now oil and gas will go the same way. We have a carbon bubble, right? Everybody talks about the carbon bubble, but nothing happens. Well, maybe we have to burst the carbon bubble. I've spent a lot of time with the big insurance companies in Switzerland, the reinsurance companies, <clears throat> and they have got fantastic global models. I mean, talk about sophisticated modeling. These guys are the best in the world. And we talk about the carbon bubble and even they can't believe it. They say, well, 
we see, and they see that they're looking at the global economy all the time. They're looking at all the, all the major factors. And, and they're, they're actually the only people taking risks because their payouts have increased by six-fold, six times. That's what they're paying out now uh, for climate risk. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the actual damage and destruction that's been insured. That's leaving aside all the, the, the billions of people who don't have insurance, right? <clears throat> and, and they cannot believe that the carbon bubble does not burst. Because we have a political logjam, which is funded by the fossil fuel, chemical, plastics, and other associated industries. And, um, you know, Green New Deal seems to me the only way to get through that logjam. And, I, you know, we could have another one-hour conversation just about that. Um, and a lot of people don't understand. It's not that complex. It's actually hmm, uh, it's simpler than it sounds, yeah? But uh, how many people in your circle are talking about that, for example? Well, we have been talking about this for the past six year, uh, 10 years, ever since we came back from California. So I've been trying to bring that awareness you know, of impact investing at the time into people's uh, minds. And I, uh, at the time, you know, I wouldn't even get an appointment <laughs> with all these people who are now calling themselves impact investors. But... What's happening, particularly in Germany, is that impact investing has been hijacked by social entrepreneurs, social investors, and so on. So the climate aspect mm -hmm. or the original definition of impact investing, that is the integration of people, planet, and profit, and not just the people, it's not, it's not in their heads. So we still have the separation between the climate investors or uh, you know, the sustainability investors, which is different from the social, and those uh, that focus on, you know, creating, relieving social difficulties and uh, creating, building, investing into the next bakery, you know, bio bakery around the corner mm -hmm. and so on. So there is segregation mm -hmm. yep. that makes things even more difficult. Now, what in terms of what we do, we do exactly that. We look for real assets. Uh, real projects and help and funds invest yeah. in them because right now they don't know that they exist. Like it's as you said, you know, they're sitting way on the ivory tower behind some desktops and doing their investments from there. They don't know what's happening on the ground. And as you said, these are not bad people. Well, yes. It's just, they're following the rules. And so well, and, and, yeah, they're, they're exactly. And so the problem, I think, uh, what uh, what we're trying to uh, to get people to understand is, what if this was your money? Because you know that's the big difference between money owners and money managers. People who get measured mm -hmm. by you know the fiduciary responsibility, you know, money managers, they make sure that mm -hmm. even if they don't make more of it, they don't make less. So they mitigate the risk. Yeah. And those like us, you know, who are basically, we see the technology as uh, the possible, you know, relief, you know, we go all the way into risk, hoping that, hey, if we don't change anything, which we don't, then hopefully technology might, uh, might help. But then, as you mentioned, employment technology is actually <laughs> making that even worse. So uh, we're going to get a double yummy. Well, it, it, it's um, it, that 
there's just a recent report. Uh, there's a recent report now every every second you know, day almost some major global report which is hammering all of this home. But this most recent one was uh, basically saying that in fact investing in a, a resilient, sustainable future is actually cheaper than not investing. In fact, there's no cost <laughs> if we if we do it now. But if we you know if you look at the carbon price, for example. Uh, the price of carbon right now should be 100 to 150 dollars uh, per ton. Yeah, uh, but by 2100, it'll be 20,000, 27,000 dollars a ton. I think is the price. And this is this new initiative which uh, even Microsoft has supported, which is trying to pull together a deal to actually to head off the uh, Green New Deal, uh, which is coming. But they're trying to head it off by saying, "Oh, let's put a price on carbon now. Let's put it 20 dollars." You know, and it's exactly the same strategy that was deployed 10, 20 years ago, predatory delay. Oh, we can see this is coming, but, you know, we got time, yeah? And so politically, again, the game is being played. And, you know, the problem is that the fund managers are part of the establishment. They are, they are part of the elite. And they go to the same cocktail parties and banquets and dinners with all these other people, right, uh, in their black ties. And, you know, I've been there too. Um, uh, and yeah, I like wearing a dinner jacket, but <clears throat> to be honest, if I'm, if I'm one of the penguins, uh, and my ice shelf is melting and my, my whole, you know, chicks have all just died like the emperor penguins did in Antarctica last week, right? Entire second biggest colony in Antarctica is wiped out. There, there, there'll be no more. There's no babies now to take their place. Um, you know, I, I would, I'm, I'm standing on thin ice. I'm very, I'm very worried that we might be eating a fine dinner at Mansion House in the city of London with all the big shots, but I can't get up there and actually tell them what I really think because they'll throw me out of that, that meeting, even if I'm slightly diplomatic about it. So I want to say, come on, get off your butts, get political, put your money where your mouth is and make these things happen. And they'll say, yeah, 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 we'll, da, 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 da. we're doing a little thing here. We're doing a little thing there. We're doing a little something over there. But most of their money is still invested in fossil fuels. It's unbelievable, right? They say, well, no, but it takes time. We have to divest slowly so we don't, you know, destroy the, the market. We have to get the money back for our investors. Yeah. So, and you look at the divestment campaign that Bill McKibben set up in 350, and that worked for quite a while. But it was just like the South African divestment campaign. It was universities, churches, you know, uh, the more enlightened people, pension funds like CalPERS and others who disinvested from South Africa. And it wasn't, it was a bit of painful, but it wasn't that painful for the South African government. They still had money coming in from various sources. And it's the same with the fossil fuel guys. They still got, you know, their, their sugar water coming in from the, the investors. And despite the activists, despite the people standing up to Ben van Beerden at Shell at the AGM in, in Holland, which is, the government's biggest investment in its pension fund is Shell, yeah? So what's the Dutch government gonna do? Are they gonna sell Shell? Well, they can't, because if they do that, they'll start destroying their pension fund, right? Because the price of Shell is gonna go down for sure. But then look at the Norwegians. The Norwegians are very smart. Luckily, they're not so big. So the Norwegians have been able to sell, well, commit to sell everything. The, the irony of the Norwegian government's oil fund disinvesting from the fossil fuel industry, right? That's beautiful. But, you know, um, that maybe they're just much more clever than everybody else. 
I don't think there's any reason the Dutch government couldn't start investing in solar and in wind and in everything else. But there's something stopping the Dutch government doing that with their pension fund. And it's the same with all the big guys around the world. I want to know what that is. I, want to, I really want them to stand up and tell me, why can't you do this? Or if you're doing it, why can't you do it a lot faster? Because there's a carbon bubble. It's going to hit us sooner or later. It's just we may not even have a human civilization left after it hits us. You know? So what are you, what are you protecting? I, I don't understand it. And is it just your bonus? Or, or, or is there something you know, worse than that? What, what are you doing? But it, 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 you know, with that meeting you and I were at, Rude Livers stood up and said the only solution to this is a carbon tax. And we were talking about $100 a ton then in, in, in The Hague at 2012. And everybody said, oh, yeah, but it's politically impossible. It's not politically impossible. In fact, it's becoming now the, the salvation of the predatory delay that they put it at $20 or $30 a ton. So they'd buy themselves another 10 years, yeah? so that the carbon bubble doesn't hit. Because if the carbon bubble bursts, that would guarantee that what we're talking about right now would change dramatically. But it won't. It won't unless that happens. And I don't, you know, apart from a Green New Deal, which means we get the politicians to declare climate emergency like they did in Britain. We had a meeting in London 10 years ago where 300 people got together at the British Museum in their auditorium, and we had, you know, 14 leading people around the planet say this is a climate emergency and it was broadcast and there was a lot of attention to it and then you know again predictably nothing happened so 10 years later uk parliament says it's a climate emergency just two weeks ago uh now we wait so what's going to happen do you think anything's going to happen well if um if we have any future, then it will happen. I think 10 years later, 10 years down the road, it's about time. And I think everywhere, I mean, at the latest, when you see, look at uh, Greta Thunberg and the kids marching in the streets, you know, uh, then, you know, people are waking up. And, and I think you and I, you know, because we've been around the block doing this for so long, we're, we have become impatient, but I, think on the on the bright side that we're very close to the tipping point and so the tipping point is you know at 10 11 percent and that's leadership once that kicks then everything mm -hmm. else will uh, will just uh, follow suit and it's not just us i mean there are so many other people who are, who are doing this and um yeah governments move slowly but i do i i, I mean <laughs> Hope is the last thing to die. So I'm doing what I'm doing and you're doing what you're doing because we believe in this. And uh, there's nothing else to do, to be honest. I mean, what else would you do in the face of, mm -hmm. of all this? Well, it, it's, it's <clears throat> I, I, you know, I've taken uh, uh, some of the, uh, the thoughts of Danella Meadows, you know, our, our well, the, probably the one of the very first people on the planet to really fully understand what was going on when she she programmed the limits to growth simulation back in 1972 for the Club of Rome, right? Well, you know that I am on the Club of Rome, don't said, you? I'm one of the hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, exa exactly. And I mean, Donella's, you know, got her ten, you know, ten leverage points, right? And of course, she says the top leverage point is the paradigm. And then to be able to change the paradigm, 
And then even another point to be aparadigmatic, which is what an integral we would call, um, whereas Ken, Ken always likes to call it, and I'm just trying to remember his exact wording. Um, uh, you know, that we're aperspectival, yeah? So that we can, we can select which perspective is appropriate for a given situation in the right context and do the right thing at the right time. And um, because when you are locked into a paradigm, which is unfortunately what is the case with most executives running most things today, because by definition, the, the let's call it the achiever and the, um, the expert achiever to some extent, and then the, uh, the individualist, and then you get the strategist, right? And the strategist perspective begins to see that transformation is possible, not only across an organization, but perhaps across an entire industry. And, and that's before you get to the alchemist, the Mandela or a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King, who sees how that a social transformation is possible. And, and now you have a 16-year-old Greta, uh, you know, talking about that, that this is needed, but Greta doesn't yet have the, um, authority or the power, she just has a voice, right? And, and she can mobilize those young people, which is what mobilized me when I was 16 in uh, social justice and environmental justice as a young leader. Uh, and, um, <laughs> you know, we thought it was actually impossible at the time. We didn't realize it would happen, that, that uh, apartheid would end, because we thought, no, nah, it's just, you know, we've got to do this because it's morally the right thing to do. Now, I'm hoping, like you, that there are enough people who are ethical and understand what I'm describing as thrivability, not just sustainability, that says we can have a much, much better future if we just did a few things in a, in a different way. And it's not threatening. It's not bad. It's, it's actually good for you, and it's good for everybody else. So what's stopping us doing it? Oh, yeah, there's these seven dysfunctional aspects of our current global system which we need to work with. And there's seven acupuncture points that, that you work with that on. And then you, you don't design any system that you create as a mechanical system, which is what we've, we've done in our finance system, by the way. Um, we need to design it as a conscious living system. And so that's what I'm teaching is conscious living systems design to people. And they go, wow, this is like magic. And I say, yeah, because when you design a system as alive, it's completely different to designing a system that's just an objective sort of dead mechanical thing. And even the Club of Rome, you know, limits the growth model was a mechanical model of industrial processes and, and biospheric, uh, you know, responses to industrial processes. And that's not to criticize it. It was for its time. It was amazing, but it didn't take into account the fact that we're alive and we're conscious, right? Which is where integral and, and all the other wonderful things out there, in terms of transformative consciousness, self-authoring and self-transforming consciousness become available to us. And there are enough people on the planet who get this at the moment, uh, a very small number, I'd say a few million, but I think there's great hope in that. Uh, and that the younger generation is now self-authoring its own consciousness and its own response is a very hopeful thing too. But you know, when I come back to the fund managers in the city of London, and I walk down those streets, you know, the Bank of England and all the places I know so well from my whole life and my career, I, I just don't get, you know, I don't get the feeling. You say we're near a tipping point, 10%. Well, yes, $32 trillion 
of investment finance arrived in Davos this year to say we need to change the game. But to change the game, we need to change the rules of the game. So what are we doing to change the rules of the game is my question. And what can I do? What can you do? What can we do together to make that happen faster? And I really... Right. And that's my question for you, um, you know, in terms of uh, advice that you could give to listening investors and entrepreneurs and business people who are listening to this. What, what is your piece of advice? What are the seven acupuncture points that you um, think we could use mm -hmm, as leverage? Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe, maybe you could help us along the way because... You know that's why we're doing the podcast to get exactly. different minds. Well, let me let me uh, let me let me talk you through those those acupuncture points, and I'm just uh, bringing them up. I'm running a series of webinars with some professional consultants and advisors in currently in Bogota, Mexico City, Miami, and Seattle of all places, <laughs> and we're going through all of this material. So uh, let me let me grab that. Yeah, I mean, the very first one is what I, I call agile or anti-fragile uh, citizens. Because I think what we have today is, is the, the propaganda that is being pushed out by PR. I mean, for every journalist in the Western world, there's four people in public relations. And most people don't realize the newspaper they pick up every morning is written by PR people on behalf of corporate and other interests. That's quite amazing, isn't it? I mean, you can see it in Brexit, for example, that the papers that are run by the Murdochs and all the other major, uh, you know, billionaires take one stance on Brexit, and that's, um, you know, uh, what you get. And you get the PR people digging for dirt, and it happens in the States with a lot of newspapers, too. So how do you get anti-fragile citizens? Well, you've basically got to educate people to be critical thinkers, systems thinkers, and, and not to just say, oh, I'm going to learn what I need to do to get a job. And that's where Greta Thunberg is a great example of somebody who steps up and says, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm basically going to uh, completely, you know, change, uh, change the game here. And uh, so that it is possible. Uh, and, but we need to scale that. So anti-fragile citizens is where I start. And I think that's, that's good for the future anyway. I mean, basically, if you don't, if you don't educate the kids now to be systemic and holistic thinkers, uh, the future is not going to be very bright anyway. Um, then the second uh, acupuncture point is is also a, a psychological one, and that's to get people into what Peter Drucker called the strategic psychological helicopter. And this is where we were talking about a perspectival and a paradigmatic uh, consciousness. And it's not that difficult, actually, if you can stop people young. It's just, whenever there's a problem, like we have a problem here, we've got a, you know, uh, a massive ecological disaster on our hands. Uh, what are we going to do about it? Well, um, you get into your strategic psychological helicopter. You look down on all the aspects of the problem and the paradigms of the people responsible for solving it. And you work on those paradigms. So you, you begin to understand the role of models and how people think how fund managers think, for example, or pension funds or insurance companies, whatever. And you work from their existing model to show them the new model. So that's, that's, that's the work I'm doing at the moment, is actually doing that, that modeling with people. Then when they see that, 
you have to f fire up their creative imagination because there's very little imagination in finance. In fact, finance is almost exclusively a left-brained activity. And most of the people in finance simply want an answer, and it's usually a number, right? They want a number. And so there's no way you can think holistically or creatively or imaginatively if all you want is a number. Um, but if you want a series of outcomes and you look at a portfolio and you say, well, hey, what could we achieve with this portfolio here? Uh, do some scenario thinking, doing some imaginative thinking, that makes a huge difference. Now, so, so none of these are directly attacking the problem, as you can see. They're acupuncture points which have massive shifts in potential for people to solve the problems at a different level than the level at which they're created. The fourth is nature reconnect, simply because people who don't get out of the concrete uh, have a very hard time doing any of the three things that we've just talked about. They're so locked into the system that they, they don't have even the ability to take a deep breath, yeah? And, and the breathlessness and the stressfulness and the, 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 the finance industry is the worst, and, and I think politics is probably the same. They're both professions where people have got no time whatsoever to take a deep walk to reflect on things, except on the weekend with the kids maybe. But then they're not thinking about the global issues necessarily. They're thinking about other things. So how do we get nature reconnect into that in our cities? Uh, we did some great work with um, Thrivable Surrey. We did some great work with... Uh, the Crown Estate, which is helping to green Oxford Street and Regent Street and the whole West End, it's great green corridors. But you know, it's so it's so incremental at the moment. It's good that they've started, but it's you know it's it's just almost too little, too late. Then the last three things are regenerative economics, and and we start with Kate Rayworth's donut, of course. So we have a social floor and an environmental ceiling on every single investment we make, and it's context scientific information driven in other words we look at actual carbon footprint we look at actual water footprint we look at what are you doing and there's only something like 71 companies on the planet reporting accurately on carbon footprint at the moment which is disgusting because given that 9,000 are signed up to the gri which has got a context principle right but they don't observe that and then the, the last two, there's exponential green tech. The technologies you and I have been talking about, whether mangroves, solar, wind, bio, fuels, you know, uh, electric vehicles, uh, better, better batteries, you know, a million and one things. Um, fish farming, for example, half the world's fish are produced by fish farms. There are good farms and bad farms, as I'm sure you know. Well, the, the good farms that are in my books, and you know, again, my books are full of these examples, they're not really getting, you know, because they're in the wrong places. They're not in Western Europe. They're in, uh, you know, the Pacific Ocean off uh, you know, Costa Rica. <laughs> so um, how do we help everybody scale what they've learned? You know, a coral, coral reef uh, regeneration, fantastic things going on. 50 time growth rate of fragmented micro coral uh, to normal coral. How do we, how do we get that going? Um, and so on and so on, and there's a million examples. And finally, true future value, which is what I propose and have been proposing since I wrote you know, uh, the Leader's Guide to Thrivability in 2015, is basically how do we replace what we today call uh, economic value added? 
in the financial markets. It's a true fact, it's a true future value added. So there's three words there. There's true, in other words, true cost, true price, true taxation, which would be part of the Green New Deal. There's uh, future, which is intergenerational equity. So we look at time horizons of 10 to 50 years, maybe 100 years in some cases, depending upon the underlying asset, assets and the, the cycle of those assets. And uh, the value, of course, then is true future value, not just economic value added without taking externalities into account. And then you, you have a band-aid called sustainability, which doesn't fix anything, really. It just means that we're now producing 35 gigatons of carbon per year instead of 25 uh, 15 years ago, which is not a good figure. And it's, uh, it's, it's just barely flatlining now. I mean, that's, that's the best we can hope for under our current way of thinking. So I always describe this in a big picture way to say, how do we go from degenerative, exclusive, and soulless neoliberal mono-capitalism, where all that matters is the money and that number at the end of the day, to a regenerative, inclusive, soulful, thrivable multi-capitalism where natural human relationship uh, you know, infrastructure that's, that's regenerative infrastructure, which is what Crown Estate's doing, which is fantastic, uh, and many others. Uh, manufactured capital, that's not a particle of waste, circular economy using renewable energy at its source. You know, to the uh, intellectual capital that we need to share and pool what we know how to fix this. And also the, the, the spiritual and then the financial capital, which which ultimately should be something like spiritual capital because financial capital should be doing the good work in the world. It shouldn't be just to hit a number on a spreadsheet. But uh, if you don't think differently, that's what we'll, we'll carry on doing what we've always done and we'll get what we always got. And, and, you know, I mean, maybe I'm sounding a little idealistic here, but those seven things are the things I know work in my own career and, 40 years of transformation, it's just very hard to get the attention of people in the financial sector. Yes, and yet we still have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> There is no way around it because it, it's at the core. Yeah. That's the elephant in the room. Well, I could be, yeah. <laughs> you and I can go camp out with a sign outside, uh, you know, HSBC and the Bank of England, you know, and uh, opposite Bloomberg and, and Aviva on that corner, which has got all the big guys there in the city of London with a sign saying, you know, um, we're striking for the climate, um, investors striking for the climate. <laughs> we're not going to invest any more money in the way we're doing it now. We've got to do it differently. Maybe we'll get some attention, get in the Financial Times. <laughs> yeah, I think there are so many of us. So that's why I hope that uh, something will shift soon. Because it's hard for the pension funds right now to say, well, no, I'm not invested, investing in climate change or climate emergency or whatever. So, as you said, you know, the UK uh, Parliament decided uh, to declare climate emergency. And as you might know, the Club of Rome announced also last fall at the 50th anniversary at the Vatican, you know, climate emergency plan. And um, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. also we are basing our strategy, the Aqual um, Group, on the uh, Transformation is Feasible report, the latest uh, report to the Club of Rome by the Stockholm Resilience Center, where 
uh, Jürgen Randers, who was the original, one of the four original authors of Limits to Growth, uh, has co-authored uh, the research also together with uh, Johann Rockström, who is now the, uh, the head of mm -hmm. uh, the Potsdam Institute for Climate. And so, and which of course reduces all the important action, action items to five instead of uh, the contradicting 17 sustainable development goals. So trying to unify them uh, so that we can achieve uh, the, the planet, uh, the, the Paris Agreement in 10 years. So yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm camping. I'm not camping virtually, uh, literally in front of those <laughs> organizations, but you know, you and I are traveling around the world and producing carbon uh, CO2 emissions uh, in, the, in the way because we have to, we have to, you know, I won't give up. There is uh, nothing else I'd rather do than just tell the truth. No, well, and if you, if, you, if you fly Norwegian Airlines, they are planting millions and tens of millions of trees in India. So when you get on a, like I do now, I fly Norwegian wherever I can because Norwegian is actually uh, actively, uh, you know, capturing carbon. Uh, and they say that they are effectively, you know, carbon neutral. Uh, as a result of all this tree planting, which uh, you know I would hope is is absolutely true, and uh, who knows uh, these days with carbon credits, etc. But we we cannot stop what we're doing. Uh, the only thing I've been thinking about recently in the last couple of years is, isn't it possible that if we can update, you know, we're essentially we're running on an out of date operating system, and if we can update that operating system in the minds of the people with the big money. In it, in it, and it's not hard, it's not painful, it's actually fun. That's what I've learned how to do it. And um, they all go, yeah, this is really good, and this is so obvious. Yeah, gee, well, you know, it's not that complicated either. It's the simplicity of the other side of all this complexity, because as an executive, I mean, you and I don't do anything else except read all this stuff and follow it and, you know, talk about it with other people. But you can imagine just being in a, in a regular job, yeah, where you've got all these meetings and all these other things, there's no way you can possibly be up to speed on all this. There's no way. And, and, and um, so how the hell do you make good decisions based on that confusion and all that complexity? I think it's almost impossible, to be honest. So I'm not saying these people are bad or, or anything. No, they're very good, smart people. They just have the wrong old models, and the old models don't explain anything anymore. Yes, and I, I hope that... As the climate changes and we, it's in front of everyone, <laughs> we can't really deny it anymore, then I hope that there is some wake-up calls, you know, occurring. And I also hope that uh, these people have kids and grandchildren who, like Greta Thunberg, you know, are just waking up and, uh, and waking them up and uh, telling them what to do. And uh, so I, I'm very positive we'll get there. So, God, you've been so generous with your time. Um, one last question. What, how do you want to be remembered, Robin? We need to continue this conversation, but for now, how do you want to be remembered? And what kind yeah. of impact do you want to have in the world with, uh, with those wishes? Oh, great question. Great question. Well, um, you know, uh, on the one hand, I would say there's a part of me that says, um, actually, we took his advice and, it, you know, 
wow, what a difference that made. And in other words, I wanted to be remembered as somebody whose counsel advice insights enabled people to take giant leaps, what uh, Claire Graves called the momentous leap for mankind. Yeah. So at one level, I'd love to, to think that the future generations, for what it's worth, would look back and say, yeah, you know, that he really made a big, big difference. Um, and it was an elegant kind of difference. It wasn't just, you know, a, a brute force. It was a kind of an intelligent, wise approach to shifting things on the planet. Um, that, that, of course, I think the chances of that happening are very slim. But um, if, if I was to say, you know, if I could make it so, that is what I'd ask Captain Jean-Luc Picard to say, make it so. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, I think that's it. I, I, like, like we all have affectionate memories of people in our past uh, who, uh, you know, I, for example, one of my, my role models has always been uh, both Gandhi and Mandela because they both went to the same law school that I went to. And we had a strong tradition of social justice. And so from a young age, I was very thinking, how can I, how can I do something in a similar way, which is nonviolent, which is kind of beautiful and elegant in its own way and gets deep inside the mindset of the system? Because that's what they both did. They got deep, deep, deep inside the mindset and they shifted that mindset globally, literally forever. And wouldn't it be amazing if you could be part of that, you know, just even, you know, for a second, yeah? That, that for me has always been a, a real inspiration. Wow, what a, what a wonderful uh, way to end this, uh, this wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Robin. I really appreciate uh, your time and your insight and your wisdom. And uh, so this is just the beginning of a long set of conversations that, uh, that we will have. Thank you so much. Well, it's been my, my great pleasure and thank you for inviting me. To find out more about Dr. Wood, visit his website rlw.zone or one of the sites in this episode's show notes. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.